0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today.
1: As our world has slowly shifted from feudal kingdom-based authorities to democratic nation-states with elected officials, the issue of land reform has been ever-present. Much of the angst that serfs and peasants experienced three centuries ago culminated in the French Revolution. After this monumental movement, several kingdoms gradually moved toward being nation-states. And the shift in idea of what leadership is involved a huge rewrite of land ownership, And over the last 250 years, European land ownership has been rewritten time and time again. Over the last century, it's pretty incredible what happened in Germany. People collectively chose to reconsolidate their land after the fractalization that occurred due to the Napoleonic laws. Wait, what are the Napoleonic laws? Napoleon abolished the status quo where land was passed from eldest son to eldest son and decreed that land would be split equally between all sons, not realizing that a few generations later, due to exponential family growth, there would not be enough land to go around. By the early 20th century, the problem festered. People owned tiny vineyard subparcels across long stretches of land. Around this time, affected regions began to discuss the possibilities of pooling their land and redistributing vineyards into more cohesive units. The problems became especially noticeable in the 1800s. This is when several regions put plans into motion to correct the extreme issues created by the Napoleonic laws. Much of the initiative came from within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We may not hear about it too much today, but in the early 1900s, the groundwork was laid for major land redistribution. In the 1960s and 70s, Land redistribution was underway in many countries in addition to Germany. In Germany, this entire process of redistribution was called, and is called, the Flurbereinigung. It affected different wine regions, or Anbagabeet in different ways, and really continues to affect them today. In the Mosel, this meant big changes in the way vineyards were farmed and harvested. Suddenly, growers could own the entire stretch of land down the hillside, and as such they could farm it using winches, which was much more efficient than sending individual pickers to this and that parcel on the same hillside. By organizing plots north to south on the hills, and by installing roads that the multiple owners could use to transfer labor and grapes, growers were better set up for the basic tasks of farming and harvesting. Before land reorganization, you needed to fund 2,500 man-hours per hectare. After fleber 1,200 man-hours per hectare. This translates into tens of thousands of dollars that a winery can save just by consolidating their land. But one of the main issues still playing out today are ripples from the government-issued German law of 1971. This happened concurrent to the big changes of the fleur The 1971 laws constructed the concept of a Grosselage, or a subregion that was particularly distinct within an Anbaugebiet. A Groselaga is a large vineyard, essentially, but during land redistribution, many extremely special smaller vineyards were melded into large Groselagen. Much of the uniqueness of the Mosel's top wines were lost in the homogeny of a larger region. For instance, two special and distinct vineyards, the Erziger Krankle and the Erziger Sonnener, were both absorbed into the Erziger Wurzgarten. This is just one of many examples. In fact, many producers today still honor the previous single vineyards with special bottlings, such as zellbach Osler's zeltinger Zeltinger-Schlossberg-Schmidt and Lussen's grechelheimerei Stable. But in the Faults, where top-to-bottom hillside farming wasn't as much of an issue as it was in the Mosel, land redistribution meant different things. Growers could focus in on the uniqueness of their own soil. Many growers uprooted and planted their new, larger vineyards to different varieties, based on soil types. This is where you see a major shift from other varieties to Riesling. The false wine growers also took the opportunity to build ditches that would help prevent flooding in the valley vineyards. And they planted specific tree areas to attract beneficial wildlife. But as these false growers ripped up old vines and worked to replant their new desired varieties, they kept finding ancient Roman artifacts. A spear, a coin, a sword, a gold crown, a sarcophagus, and then an ancient Roman villa. Vines most likely grew here wild before the Romans came. But when they arrived in 100 A.D., They brought domesticated vines with them, and they changed the drinking culture of this region forever. The artifacts and archaeological sites in the faults date back to the 300s, just a couple hundred years after the Romans first arrived. In the Mosul, the new layout of vineyards made harvesting more efficient and economical, though some prized single vineyards were absorbed into a larger parcel. In the faults, as growers dug up old vineyards and worked to create the next stage of faults winemaking, they mistakenly stumbled upon winemaking's first chapter in this region. It's incredible how one winemaking renaissance is directly connected to another in the same region 1,700 years later.
0: I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to IdealWine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I D E A L W I N E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Andrea Francetti on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you?
2: I'm fine, thank you. It's good to be in New York, and it's good to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you as well. So you had been a restaurant tour in in Rome and in the Marque, and what happened next?
2: Well, I was just come back from New York City, where I stayed for almost all of the '80s, and where I was distributing wine. And I I had just come back to Italy, and I. I just thought of opening, a, of starting a restaurant with some good local food in Rome, and the same thing in Yezi, which is in the Marque, on the Adriaticos, with local food there too. And so uh, I, I thought I could do it uh, at an arm's length, uh, having some having people manage the restaurant and me being sort of the just the owner financial person behind it. And uh, it, didn't, it didn't work. So after a month, it wasn't disastrous, but it, was, it wasn't as successful as I thought. And, and most of all, I had to go there more than I wanted to. So to the restaurants, I mean, so I just, I sold it to the managers and uh, that ended it. But I never was a restaurateur, really. Uh, I just knew about food. Because I grew up also in the Marke, and, uh, and my grandmother's from there, so I, I knew the cooking of the Marke. Just, and I've always been a Roman. I grew up in Rome, and so I know about Roman food and, and how to make the right kind of Roman food as opposed to the tourist kind of restaurant that used to be, like most restaurants used to be like then, back then. Now uh, all the restaurants are much better. What
0: was the scene like in New York when you lived there? Uh,
2: New York it was a completely different situation than today, where wherever you go, you, wherever you turn, you find an interesting restaurant doing some special kind of food from in, within all possible ways of the food and all possible creativities and ideas. And from fusions to the real restitution of original food from around the world, and it's all very well done. Uh, then there were these, a restaurant by definition was an Italian restaurant, and it was a big gloomy place with waiters who moved uh, uh, slowly. It had a Cosa Nosa feel to it with the big, you know, with luxury chairs with the cardinal red coverings, and there were three or four staple plates, and, uh, you know, the fettuccine and and so forth, and wines from Tuscany or from Piedmont Barolos, which were cheap uh, and not even that... They weren't even marked up the way they are now. That's interesting. They were just like... The price wasn't very high for those bottles, Uh, but it was very monotonous, and those were the restaurants where you could possibly sell wine, and they were very surprised when I arrived with wines that cost five or eight times more than the Italian wines they were used to buying. Uh, And I had researched uh, these wines around north and central Italy, and I was trying to sell them at a decent price because I thought, because there were some beautiful Italian wines to sell. And I, but I was a bad salesperson and that I got very intimidated when I had to sell, I'm not made of the stuff of a salesman, but I loved going around Italy, picking the wines and then bringing, shipping them to New York. So for six years, I went on doing this and distributing the wines. And the company was called River Wine Distributing Corporation. The offices on Twenty First Street and in Chelsea. It it was it was fun, and the wines actually sold because there was a curiosity and and an interest for them. And they were Barolos and uh, Barbarescos and Brunello and and the first Friuli whites and a couple of very good Friuli reds. All these wines have become uh, have held up and are being produced today. They were. Uh, And the the winemakers were just beginning, some very few winemakers in Italy were beginning to make their own way uh, and do their own winemaking in a way that wasn't just what their fathers did. Uh, That is, if they grew up in in an estate that was owned by the family, which was usually the case, it was very unusual that anybody would open a new winery in Italy as it started happening later. So, uh, again, the most interesting thing was seeing these new tendencies happen and taking place very shyly in Italy in the early 80s.
0: You were in the Siena area, Siena-Umbria kind of border. And then what happened then?
2: I mm, was driving north of Rome into, on the highway that goes to Florence and halfway there's an exit which is... Which is takes you in, in Tuscany, but right after the near the border, the southern border of the Siena region, which is the southern region of Tuscany, and so you're bordering with Lazio to the south and with the Umbria to the east, and there are, it's a vast valley, very, very empty, with no dwellings, very few houses, which are. Were then and mostly still are ruins, and it was not the classic Tuscany <clears throat> that people have have now called Canty Shire because it's so popular with the English people and and many others. So this was a an empty corner of Italy where I just stopped. I found this house. I asked how much it cost, and they and I could afford it, and I bought it along with the property. Uh, around it and uh, when i when I, I you know i stayed there and i when i woke up the next morning and i went to the place which was a ruin uh, i was so astounded by by the landscape and by the light of the place that i i found myself not leaving and and i sort of forgot about my family in rome and and just stayed there Till I had put a roof on the ruin, and I put a mattress on the floor, and I was digging in the in the fields and messing around, and 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 it was really empty and with no energy or anything, and I started taking care of all that, and uh, I wanted to stay there, so in order to stay there, I had to do something there, and and, and I decided to, the natural answer was to make wine because. Wheat seemed too boring to me, and, uh, and that's just about all that grows in that area. So I went to Bordeaux, where I had friends, fortunately, who own um, chateaux and make wine, and um, some of them are French, some are not French. And uh, they uh, they showed me around, and I, I stayed there long enough to get a feel of how many things I needed to know more about. And then I learned about those. And then I started going back and forth as the works in my farm, my new farm had started and I started planting. And I planted the vines like I saw in Bordeaux, in other 10,000 plants per hectare, uh, which means you put a vine on each, you know, one meter away from the next vine on any direction. And uh, so you need a special machinery to do that, which is not the tractor that goes into the rows because the row is too narrow to have a tractor penetrating. So have a a tractor with a bridge that takes a couple of rows under its belly and the driver and the engine are sitting on top of the bridge. And and that's how you plow and dig the, the soil around the vines. And then it was a matter of what kinds of vines to plant. Uh, But what I'm saying is that I was driven by um, an emotional realization that I wasn't in in a perfect place, aesthetically speaking. I had found a place where I was very happy to be. And the reason I was happy to be there was not the society surrounding me. uh, It was not uh, the neighborhood, it was not people, but it was the landscape meaning uh, something as purely very aesthetical and very emotional. Uh, if you start working in that environment, it becomes also, uh, let's say, very ethical in the sense that it becomes your whole. Uh, you know, where you hole up and uh, and you are driven to continuously to better it. And that's the principle of, of a garden, and you make this garden around you the best way possible. And you also want to make the wine tasting the best way possible. Because there was no previous winemaking in that area, uh, there, were, there were some vines that you could uh, discern left in a couple of spots near the house, which was just for the farmer's own consumption. Uh, but except for that, there wasn't any wine viticulture or certainly no appellation of any kind. The closest place where they were making wine institutionally and, and regularly is uh, Montalcino, which is about 30 kilometers north of where I am. And um, so I, I started uh, getting interested in the soil, first of all, and I had to plant in the right soil. Most of the area is... Uh, Blue clay impermeable um, kind of uh, soil where uh, that is good for making vases, but not for planting not for planting vines because it's too plastic and it just chokes I mean it doesn't it doesn't let the roots spread uh, airily as they should so the the vines are are sour and, uh, but there are areas where the gravel. Is mixed with the clay, and or you go high enough on the mountain, and you're not in the ex-sea bottom anymore, but you're more on the eroded coast, and there you have broken, newly broken stones. So you have rows of kind of uh, mountain um, viticulture that you can do, but all these are all small strips that overall in the whole of the High, higher Valdorcha, That's the name of the valley where I found myself dwelling. Uh, are maybe twenty he- hectares overall, and I, I'm still cutting off little pieces because they're a little bit too much on clay. So I don't. There's not even that. So that my first research was about soil, because um, unlike other people, I, I didn't. I wasn't looking for the a certain kind of soil. But I happened to be in a place where I wanted to make wine. And so I was looking for the best soil possible to do that, which is a very different approach. Now that I know more about it, I would go for a place that has the right kind of soil. But it's something that never occurred to me then. In that sense, I was fairly lucky because it was part luck and part necessity in the sense that I found myself... Uh, making wine in a place with, which had the predominance and a, a, percent, a large percentage of clay in the soil mix. And that made me face the music of a certain kind of wine that I had to deal with anyway, which is a wine which is sort of force-fed in its roots because of the drainage being very slow. So that that is something that you get with clay now uh, you know clay. Some people like wines that come from clay; others don't. If you go to Bordeaux, can really it's a fifty percent situation. Half the people like clay; half the people hate it. Uh, if you live in a place where it's almost only clay, you kind of hate it because you think that that anything else is has to be better than that. Also, clay sticks to the bottom of your shoes. It's greasy when it's wet. And it's very, very, very heavy to work uh, with machines, especially the machines for viticulture break immediately if they, they're used to the thin sands of Bordeaux. And these machines that are made for tight uh, rows, that's what they they're used to work in that kind of light soil. So once they're applied to these heavy, heavier soil, so it's just a nightmare. You have to change the pieces, the plows, the the springs, everything. So and that I did, and and um, I ended up with all these hectares in five or six years. I had planted them all, twenty of them. And it was a team of French people who came over from Bordeaux who had planted all their lives. Um, that was very instructive for my team because they they saw these French old timers who had a completely novel, to their eyes, uh, approach to how, to, how you uh, live with the vines and how, how you work with them. Uh, we ourselves became very good at planting. We, we started planting even for other people who wanted to try the tight planting uh, system. Most of them stopped after a couple of years because you need a lot of very skilled uh, labor means educating and being after the, you have to be after the viticulture almost more than if you were uh, a true biodynamic uh, believer, because uh, the gr- the great thing about biodynamics is, is that it makes people put their faces closer to the vine, and so they they start getting a sense of what a plant is and how it lives and how it progresses and what it needs and what it doesn't need. And uh, so they, they have a chance to learn more uh, the, the archaeology, let's say, of how to make a good wine. Before, people were not used to looking very carefully at viticulture, at least in Italy. Uh, now, uh, this has become much better. Uh, if you have a complicated setting of vi- uh, vines, where the vines are very close to each other, you have to. Uh, look at what you're doing very carefully, um, and see that the plants are fine, and so you 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 get a feel of how, what kind of a plant it is, and how delicate or strong it is, and for which reasons, and how to prune it and all that, better than if you have a large wide planting where it's really not important how closely you follow it. So uh, the the viticulture that went under my belt. For the first three years, where you see the cycle every year, and you sort and you learn about it, and then uh, the first berries appear, and I started picking just as an experiment, knowing that it was experimental. And then the second time, also, and uh, at that point, it was fifth leaf, five-year-old plants, uh, and um, when uh, the plants got to be six, seven-year-old. I finally picked, uh, for the first time, a wine that I later bottled and brought to market. And And what year was that? And that was in 1997. I mean, the story is that uh, I brought the wine to Bordeaux because that's where I knew wine people. I didn't know anybody in Italy, except I knew people, but I wasn't very interested in learning from them, so I, I, I wasn't seeing them much. Uh, but I thought you could really learn in Bordeaux from Bo- what they did in Bordeaux. And I also brought a bottle to the market there, and they sold that wine um, in doing their en premier offering along with the Bordeaux wines, and it w- went very well, and um, prices went up, and it went through the regular classic negos system of of, with, of the merchants of Bordeaux, is a complicated system that is very effective in some cases. Uh, anyway, it had nobody knew about tenuta di Tinoro wine in Italy for the first four or five years. but internationally they did know about it, especially because it was the time in which .com money had uh, projected lots of people internationally with an interest on wine. and so Bordeaux had become suddenly a jet set kind of scenery with people going around with Ferraris and, and swinging magnums of uh, Montrocher out of the window. So uh, it, it suddenly there was this, for the first time, this this vision of uh, wine almost as a fashion industry kind of item or like star system. So in those times you could, uh, that, so that's how Tenuta di Tinoro started becoming more expensive and and. and uh, and being drunk uh, along with the famous wines a Bordeaux and, and from other places like California too, uh, where the same thing was happening also. I think that what I wonder about when I ask myself about how do people look for the highest quality of wine, and, and uh, I mean, what is a very good wine a very good wine to a winemaker—it's—it's uh, it's easy to understand what what it is if you take someone who's grown up in a classic winemaking place, where there's been a bettering of all procedures in order to that goes in a certain direction that has a place for the last five centuries, like in Burgundy, say. Uh, and his father's been ba- making wine, or the, or the chateau has always made that certain kind of wine, and you only try to make it more so, uh, with undulating styles, in, in the sense that it could be a heavy wine's period in which uh, that the heaviness is à a- la mode, or, or you can go through periods in which the wine should be fresher and lighter and more mid-palate, because that's the style in that moment, or whatever. But still, you're, you're in the, in a the canyon of gusto and of taste that is the canyon of the Merlot, the Fra- Cabernet Franc, and the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Petit and what have you, made in that particular climate with that particular wine coming out of it. And that guides you. But if you're in a completely brand new place where wine has never been made before, what are the criteria that should guide you for direction in your winemaking? I have never made wine in classic places. I have always been gone to new places. Uh, well, twice, and I've done that also consulting for other people. So maybe ten times I've made, I've started many wines in places where they had never been. Planted and made before, and uh, 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 and the thing is together. To, so you develop a different talent, which is uh, uh, through exercise you can learn everything, including this, including following the vision that a certain place suggests to you, and 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 you are suggested uh, a vision by the light and the nights and the days of a place, and staying there it grows on you. And um, all the lights of the sun and the temperatures of the winds and uh, the humidity or the dryness of the air come in, into your mind and become something invisible, which is locked in the, in the secret area of your mind. And, and that is something that has an effect so that uh, you keep it in mind and uh, it has to be translated in a code sort of and that code is the way you make your wine so the place is the first thing that influences you in making a a new wine a wine that does not have a style a recognized style that that it it, it should be made of Uh, and so in this sort of disorder where all you have is a rich liquid because you know certain techniques like like concentrating thanks to uh, uh, viticulture with very little berries on each plant and so forth. Sure, you have a very ripe, beautiful, powerful liquid, but that is, is only the raw material, which is not, even though it, it gets better with 10 or 15 years of aging. But while before that happens, you don't know which form which style that you're looking for, for your own wine.
0: Because Uh, you made a wine called Palazzi for a while, and then you stopped making it.
2: And I also stopped making wines because I wasn't happy with with what was happening right. So uh, it's your own evolution that uh, dictates what you're doing, and it's also the continuing influence of... um, I mean, it's your conscious thought, really, that is uh, aesthetic thought, like the one of people who cut you know, dresses for fashion. It's a professional work of styling or that design car bodies or buildings. That together with what I mentioned before, which is the um, the invisible in your mind, which is acting without you knowing it and transforming itself like the outside used to transform itself from thunder to stormy weather to sun and this sort of metamorphosis happens in your own mind and uh, as a result you have some mysterious contributions that you give to the wine that's uh, do you uh, think that
0: your family's background in the textile industry helped you see it more as a fashion idea in terms of cutting
2: and uh, no, it's an example that I, I just picked, no, because they ne- were never really, um, my family is, is a very prominent textile family in America, on my mother's side, Side, but they are very successful and very intelligent uh, and very hardworking industrialists, uh, uh, they're not involved really with fashion as much as making money. Uh, with textiles which is different they make industrial textiles and and chemical things like that but um that was just an example i was thinking of the fashion and the fashion industry
0: because um, they say you look like you've seen laurent you know it's been said with the glasses
2: you know, you know, seen it's, laurent.
0: it's been said that you, you resemble him you know
2: you say I look like Feline. No, no, no! I, I didn't really say don't. you look. Oh, I that, said you're, you because I like Feline.
0: No, no, no! You the style, like the the speech and the type oh, of things you say, is similar. I see. Similar I see, personality.
2: See. Well, uh, they're they're all uh, people that I'm glad uh, that I remind remind you or other people of. Uh, I'm very happy uh, of that because definitely the reason I stayed. 20 years in Trinoro making wine uh, in this uh, still extraordinary wine valley, because when I go there, I just can't resist being seduced by it again, uh, is that I'm—obviously, um, uh, I respond uh, very creatively to, to, to this place. It, uh, it's an um, extraordinary place. I don't only do the viticulture and the winemaking— which uh, through the years I've learned how to do and how to do in a way so that I, through my efforts, make a wine of a certain kind instead of just trying to save the day and avoid the wine turning into vinegar. Those are the first steps. Then you you can also turn into what they like. In Italy they call it the winemaker's, you acquire winemaker's philosophy. I don't see why it's not It's technique really, it's not a philosophy. Uh, but they they like to use this term <clears throat> when uh, so you can. It's not only about using wood or not using wood or all or, 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 or things like this that everybody now understands and knows about, even outside the wine world. But I mean, even people who are not directly winemakers. But it's all there's also a lot of other stuff uh, in the f- time in which um, you keep the wine before bottling which is two years and you have time while the w- wine is still not stable and uh, to direct it in a certain direction in that period and that's uh, so the wine making doesn't stop it overlaps with the with another vintage actually you your wine making the, the say the um, 2013 and uh, contemporarily, you have to go back to the 2012, and and change horses completely. And so, where was I? You know, it's and it's like going to a different novel. Um, when I went to Sicily, which was uh, just 15 years ago, in uh, year 2000, I was just going visiting Sicily with no thoughts of wine in my head, but I. Uh, then I started getting them, one, and I asked myself, where would be a good place to make wine uh, in such a hot island where it's difficult to make a fine wine? You can make uh, volume wines uh, like they always have done in Sicily of great quality. But if you want to stress your production, uh, you're going to find yourself with horrible alcohol levels and and, uh, and the sun is too hot at the wrong times of the year, so you won't be able to make a great wine in this fabled island. On the other hand, I thought Sicily is a place where it was always possible to do everything, and everything always has happened in Sicily. Everything possible has happened in Sicily. So why not look around? And I went driving, and, and I bumped into this huge mountain where the it got very cold and and while it got very cold suddenly it was covered with vineyards and that was the place where obviously uh, you made one, the great wine uh, but I hadn't tried that particular berry the wine that came from Nerello Mascalese which is the plant that wraps all around Mount Etna and grows only, there only and everywhere there and it's Pale red, not sudden at all, that goes on a mountain that that is over ten thousand feet high. that means that you know it's you have glacier on the top permanently, and so you have cold air coming down every night, and your legs your your knees hurt it's so it's so cold even in the summer. And then the wind of the of the high mountain stars. And so it's a very, very, it changes a lot. All the grapes that have all ever been planted on Mount Etna get later and later and later harvested every year because they just adjust to this uh, difficulty by becoming late harvesting. So maybe Nerello Mascalese, which is a very late harvesting kind of. Plant uh, initially was an early harvester like a Pinot Noir, but I'm, I'm sure even though people compare it a lot with Pinot Noir because it has it's fine and light, and lithe like Pinot Noir, it is not Pinot Noir at all. I mean, it's a different creature for sure, and um, it did go and bulk for decades to places where they did make Pinot Noir and they had phylloxera. Up in France and, and Burgundy and they they in um, the macron I mean they. This was in the 1900s, 1900,
0: like 1910. It was,
2: it was in a, yes, it was from the and from the 90s to the 10s, 20s, 30s, and then it ended then there, even the 30s. So it was a completely abandoned place, because that was their market, and when that market shut. And then the war came also, but uh, until from the 30s to until now, there was nothing going on. Everything was abandoned, very, very gloomy, with big shapes of ancient shuttles all over the mountain. And I went and bought one of them, uh, the highest and the largest uh, that they had told me about, and I... And uh, I immediately, that's because I immediately recognized the potential of that place. Because not only, and also the the, the giant that Mount Etna is with its eruptions, and it's unbelievable if you haven't seen it. You just want to try to make wine in a place like that, because you know, as a winemaker, what it means in the sense of the the incredible opportunities that that lie there, and because of you, you want to. Be part of a place that is so unique, which is uh, has nothing to do with the winemaking, but it's irresistible. And then later on, you find out that it, that many other people feel the same thing, and to the point that when today there are 70 producers, and it's a little strip on the north side of the mountain. Uh, that's the only area where wine is really made on Mount Etna. Uh, and the steeper and higher you go, the more terraced it is, and so you only have small sections. The acreage is really cut up in small pieces. It's not uh, an easy, and it's very. It's not a cheap viticulture to do. Anyway, uh, I when I first had that wine, I didn't like it very much. The wine made with Nerello Mascalese, and I. Tried to make it better, but I did it the wrong way because I tried to do it like I would do with the uh, with the grape that I need to concentrate more, uh, making uh, the kind of doing the kind of viticulture that does that and the winemaking that extracts more to have a thicker juice, in other words. But that was not the right what I should have done. But I only, it took me ten years to realize that because it's like changing completely your way of dressing or cooking or, or I mean, some fundamental behaviors. Uh, and it, it, it's something you don't do unless uh, you're lucky, I would say. It's a matter of being lucky in this case, that you suddenly see another way, and, it, and, and it's, it's an image that drives you. Uh, and in this case, it was an image of a pale-colored uh, cosmic, sort of royal juice that of a, of a Venetian red that comes from a very high, tall mountain, and that uh, this very fine wine is the answer, almost transparent, almost like a white wine uh, with very little matter in it, very little not uh, so wave. Uh, this this was an image. Uh, and by following that direction, I found a way of making Nerello... I think, at least uh, the way it should be, taste the best way Nerello can taste, which uh, means really applying techniques that are are different in the winemaking. So uh, while I initially just wanted to plant my own vines on the mountain, I ended up making the Nerello, which I found there as a principal, as a main job on the mountain. Now, this thing um, about... Going to a place and be very attracted to it and, and, and really not knowing what to do but wanting to stay there is the, it means that there is something you are finding that you don't know what it is yet. But it means that you have sort of found yourself suddenly on a, on a path that you don't want to leave, uh, though you don't know what that path is at all. And and um, if you have always lived in the city, like almost all of us, and you go to a place where uh, the, the only house is uh, 30 miles uh, in a certain direction, uh, but the, the whole uh, uh, valley is very beautiful and welcoming, and, and uh, you feel, uh, you, you know, what's happening to you there is that you are, you are beginning to go to change your life completely because if you live, if you start living there, you can either, it, it, it could be a, become a weekend thing, so you go there for the weekends and uh, you have fun building your house and doing your garden uh, from Friday to Sunday night. But if you, instead you just move there with an excuse like that of making wine, you find that Uh, that an excuse to stay there i mean all the time then you will find uh, that your whole um, uh, existence changes now everybody people in america there is a huge tradition of uh, of the wilderness holding up the spirit of this country you go you can still go west and if you 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 can't even live on the oregon coast because it's just too wild you have to move back a little bit uh and so that the sea is in, in sight because it's just too too wild and violent uh so there's plenty of wilderness and a lot of people who are fed up with the with with the life they they have um have been moving Uh, out in the wilderness and it's an american tradition it's not it's a great patrimony of this country uh it has a different meaning uh here because because in america uh, nature is not beat uh, nature still overwhelms and so if you go into if you go uh, into the wilderness you're going to change your life and, and you know it you know when you do that uh, in a place like Italy, where nature has been beat century after century and manicured, and and and, uh, and where every spot of of country has an old ruin next to it, uh, you you're, you might be just as um, as lonesome, but you are in a different kind of atmosphere, which is a cultural atmosphere. Which is very comfortable uh, because you can restore it a little bit by uh, by uh, redoing the meadows that have been left, uh, repatching up the walls that have been. That that's the same thing in New York State, really, you know, and changing the changing the reason for the cultures in, in that place, and and really you break your back while you're doing this. It's no, it's not something you can do, um, and and the only way. Uh, the only way to do it is is really if you're making decisions like in viticulture every minute of the day uh, or every day then you have to in, intervene yourself you have to do things with your own hands or do do it together with other people who are helping you other workers to show them how you want it done so this has obviously an, a physical effect of great exercise, and that also changes you, and and uh, and uh, and you and you and you start to uh, live by the the sun and the moon and the seasons, and uh, and the vegetation, and these forces uh, take over and and change you completely. So I think that uh, there are some uh, pioneering winemakers. That have gone through that experience, and I know several in Italy. And uh, when they make wine, it's really the summing up the, the story of the whole past year. And that's part of why it's so exciting to make wine, because it's a bit, it's also, uh, the wine is also a document of the year that has passed, where you've been, remember, outdoors all the time. Uh, and in Italy there is this uh, there is a, there is a drive for nature and people going looking for nature. Uh, there's all these swings have always happened uh, uh, especially when there's economic problems and people also uh, problems of of not being satisfied with the life you're leading you know and then people start talking about nature very much. And um, talking about nature is a very is a very is a fountain of uh, of misleadings and and mistakes because you know you you risk becoming a worshiper of a broccoli or something or a carrot and and it's much more complicated than that. But if you go in if you go in the country, um, you learn what nature is and how and also about your own nature. But to go back to the wine, um, I think that in these years I've been able to shape slowly these wines by repeating the Marie uh, into uh, both on Mount Etna in Sicily and uh, in Tuscany in Valdorcia, d'Orcia. You can call it Tuscany. For the first few years I didn't even know I was in Tuscany. I realized afterwards that I was in Tuscany. Uh, shaping them into uh something that 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 um i know i need to repeat and that is and that and that has its own character its own style to itself so um it's a readdition of in a different way of that single uh, vintage um of a certain opera of a certain kind of expression uh, that who those who understand wine can recognize uh, so i think this is a, a big achievement that that happens very very slowly hasn't completed itself yet uh, but because it can always be extended uh, but it's um, it's uh, it, it makes the whole adventure of um, marching into the countryside uh, something with, the, with more, with, that has also, you also have the satisfaction of a very uh, solid document of something that you've done.
0: When you dealt with the Norello, you also planted Petit Verdot and Cesanese in Sicily and you had those in Tuscany. What was it like to work with those grapes in different places?
2: yes the when you when you want to make a new wine uh, you have to you have to look at uh, some parameters uh, so that you won't once you plant it you can't it, it's too long to change what you've done so you have to think about how if it's a if a vine is a, a late harvester in other words if it ripens In a given place, say, in central Italy or in France, uh, uh, Petit Verdot will ripen in the the second half, end of October, so late, uh, compared to, say, uh, Pinot Noir that will ripen in the middle of September. So there there, there can be big differences. Uh, And that's just the cycle of the plant. So if you take that grape And you plant it in a place where the latitude is much lower, like in Sicily, you know that you're going to, whatever you're you're planting will be ripening a month and a half earlier because there are 2,000 kilometers from where that plant grows and the new place you're bringing it to. On the other hand, so you want, but if you, you don't want it to ripen too fast because you're on a place that might be too hot. And so that would just burn it out and burn out its fruit and it would shrivel under the sun while it's ripening. So instead, uh, you want it to be in the cool weather of uh, fall uh, before you pick it. Uh, So that's one consideration, the cycle of the plant and then the latitude and and the altitude. Uh, If a place is up on a mountain, it's going to be ripening even later. So uh, the altitude the, the, you know, of uh, Mount Etna ba- balances the latitude of being so far south in Sicily. Uh, and so those are the sort of mechanical decisions you make. And then you have a taste in mind. What might those two grapes mixed together give you as a taste? Do I like the idea of that kind of taste? combined with that, what that soil does on that mountain, that black soil on Mount Etna, which is so spicy and sort of lacking in body, but very heady, and, and uh, would it do well with what I know the wines from those kinds of berries can be like? Uh, and that's something you have to just imagine. And so you, you, you then you reach a decision. In this case, it was Chisanese, which is a very late harvester that grows... Uh, south of Rome, Uh, and it's a a, um, very uh, aromatic red grape. And I planted a couple of patches of that, and I also planted a couple of patches of Petit Verdot, which is a uh, late-harvested grape that grows in Bordeaux. More thick-skinned, much blacker wine than the Chisanese, but they actually uh, do ripen, in the middle of August, which is um, a good time before, because you're far away from any damage coming from the rains. And so I planted those and then I started mixing them when the plants were old enough to yield berries and I made a wine called Franchetti, which which uh, has my name because it's just a different wine. Uh, then the plant than strong. the Pasco than, than the Nerello Mascalese yeah. wines are yeah. That come from a plant that grows already indigenous to the mountain. So it was brought, they were brought by me. And they turned out to be um, uh, good wines for what I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, of course, some years are better, some years are, are worse. But, uh, but uh, it's a very thick black wine that has a, a sort of a marzipan and citron flavor and taste. And and then with aging, it ages well because those are uh, grapes that I knew already that the juice of those grapes ages very nicely.
0: And you also experimented with white wine with the Guardiola in Sicily, and I yes. don't think you had made white in Tuscany, so a new thing for you at that
2: time. Yes, it was a new thing. There's um the plants of. Um, Nerello Mascalese, a red grape that grow all over uh, Mount Edna. Uh, every now, every 10 or 20, there's a plant of white. Like it used to be in Chianti or it used to be on the Rhone, or in many places, but they used to mix it all in and to have a more graceful wine when you have it on your table. There, they've been making wine by squeezing all the grapes that come into the winery they that they set aside because they only want to make the, the the reds. And then they take all the, at the end of the harvest, they take all the whites, press them together. And it's uh, five or six, seven different plants that grow on Mount Etna. Um, some of them come from Greece. Some of them, they're the different plants. Uh, the result is not, is less than exciting. And so, Uh, I've always thought that if you want to make a wine, uh, you have to use one of the great, great grapes, which there are only three of in the white Rion, uh, which are Chenin Blanc, Riesling, and Chardonnay. Even though Chardonnay is so boring because everybody talks about it, still that doesn't take away the fact that it's one of the great top, top kinds of fruit, and then... Otherwise, if you want to make a red, you have to use Cabernet or Merlot, Pinot Noir if you can, if the place is okay. You know, and Cabernet there's not many others. Those are the ones. The others are second rate compared to these. Just the way Sauvignon Blanc is less good than Chardonnay. Uh, they're good, but they're second rate. The plants, the white grapes on Mount Etna, are, are sort of. Fourth rate. So, I planted Chardonnay way up at a thousand meters on terraces on the north side there, in my property in Mount Etna, and it was and 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 it's doing very well. You have to pick it quickly and not let it. You can't let it go all the way through its ripening, like they do in Chablis, because uh, it, it it would turn into a Californian kind of very fat greasy alcoholic white so you have to uh, stop it and, and pick it when it's about 12 and a half in alcohol or 19 in sugar percent sugar percentage and and it's just beginning to develop and to turn into a into the grape start you can having fruit and not just acidity and um, by picking it that way, I made a Chardonnay, which is very hard to age, because it's picked sort of while it's still hard and fresh, and it needs a it needs more bottle time. That I've been able to keep it, I've been able to keep it only for short periods. I would like to keep it for a whole year and a half more. Uh, but it will. It, it after a few years, it becomes a great. It will become a great wine. I haven't seen it change enough yet.
0: I found the fruit somewhat interesting. I mean, what's interesting you said about the Chardonnay as a variety, because sometimes your Chardonnay doesn't super remind me of Chardonnay. In terms of the fruit, it reminds me sometimes more of like a Vignet or a Pinot Gris. It's fruity, you know. Yep. I don't mean it's to be true. disrespectful, but that's no, no. You
2: know. There's nothing. more. I mean, who cares about the taste of Chardonnay? <laughs> it's fine with me. It's just the wine that counts, you know. Uh, and uh, and I'm glad it doesn't really taste too much like Chardonnay, which can be really uh, that uh, nauseating, maybe. But I mean, uh, it's true, and, and that's what. And I like that about this wine because it's a, it's a, it makes it possible to use the grape as a tool. Instead of making wine, it's like if you're making a chardonnay, a chardonnay is a grape, it's not a wine. You're making wine. I don't think people should even know about what the wines are made out of. Uh, <laughs> they should just appreciate the wine and not... Of course, it's helpful to know uh, in the labyrinth of all these labels, but it's the wine that counts and not the varietal. And Certainly, the lava... Takes sort of cuts the chardonnay motive out of the fruit and 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 just lets it have a, a nice fruit. It's it's really the limestone that makes that kind of. Uh, or in, in California, if it as soon as it ages a little, I mean, if you pick it a little later, then the the chardonnay factor explodes, uh, and and you really taste it. Also, I don't use wood, which is very often associated with, white, with the, the white wines of Chardonnay. And I only use, I just make it, you know, steel for fermenting and then cement for aging. In
0: 2009, you introduced a selection of different vineyards from Pasco Pistrero, Norello, usually old vine, different elevations. How did those bottlings differ for you?
2: when i owned the small plots up and down the mountainside and i when i harvested the grapes I, I i realized that the grapes coming from certain areas when we brought the grapes in were very different in taste than the others and so i i started the, i pulled them out of the mix and made them by themselves as a um, single Contrada vineyard wines. Now, um, a Contrada is uh, an old property in Sicily, and they're all over Italy, and they're, they're fairly well um, divided, There's a, I mean, the people know where one Contrada ends and another one starts. Um, then later on, these feudal properties got obviously cut up in different In different ownerships, but the the difference with uh, Mount Etna is that the contrade in Mount Etna lay each one on a single lava spill. So the mineral the mineral mix of the ground of one contrada is completely different from the mineral mix of the ground of another contrada. The soils are different, and so you can have. Let me give you an example. Lava comes out of the top of the mountain, or from a, a you know, a mouth that opens after some some explosions, and and uh, on the side of the mountain, and the lava starts gushing out. And if it's a big a big situation with a lot of pressure, then the lava will keep running down the side of the mountain and not stop way up high, but keep going down all the way to where the vines are cultivated. That happens very rarely, but it can. It happens, it has happened very much in the last thousands of years. As the lava comes down, it can. It, it can. It goes a, a meter an hour. It's like a thick paste that a wall that is slowly coming down, eating up the woods and the trees. Um, but it's very slow. Sometimes it's like water. Uh, overnight, it'll, it'll go all the way down, uh, reach the bottom of the, of the valley and uh it's even dangerous because it comes too fast, and people uh can't get away from their homes in time i mean they they always can, but i mean it's that fast and um so this gives you an idea of how different the the mix and the substance of the of the lava which is fished out of uh, five thousand meters down into the uh, into the crust of the earth you know can be so it brings up all this material which then takes really. Uh, A whole century before you can cultivate it. And as it dries, it dries in so many different ways that that's another uh, uh, variable. So it can be, you know, in in powder, very thin powder, like face powder or gravel, big gravel, thin gravel, everything. So one contrada uh, is uh, one old property. Uh, and uh, it's and a lava spill comes down and it and it spreads out and it creates a beautiful plain which later becomes a property. So each contrada is again for mechanical reasons really uh, it's it's it sits on one lava spill and there the vines are going to taste different. I mean the fruit is going to taste different from the next vineyard if it's on another lava spill. And that's a fascinating situation of Mount Etna that you can have crews that are extraordinarily different one from the other, and uh, and uh, and and we're trying to uh, by making wine, me and other producers there, we're trying to highlight this and find a really and already a graduatory of um, of the quality of different coltrades is appearing in the sense that there are three or four contrade that seem to be the best, and we share them and cultivate them, um, and it's a very interesting and ongoing work. But uh, it was uh, picked up very quickly by people, uh, the public, the, the consumers, the wine lovers have picked on this idea very rapidly, more than I would have ever thought
0: you think that's because of other people also doing it, or do you think that's because of the Burgundy
2: model? I think the Burgundy model really helped, and it's also helped uh, that, in the sense that the producers were happy to imitate it. Uh, because uh, in a new place, when you're starting all over, in an abandoned place like that, you're confused, and anything is good uh, to recognize. But I think it happened because there's an extraordinary communication in the wine world. Uh, more than in any other segment of, of of, uh, okay. of, of what we do, yeah, and 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 so things like what we are saying right now, which uh, five or six years ago would have sounded, you know, like first time and crazy, are already something people have heard about and and are interested in, and this is because it's there's an amazing amount of intelligent people who are forwarding the new. The, 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 what's going on in the wine world?
0: And you're friends with Frank Cornelison on the island? Yeah, yes, yes. And, and you guys spend time and talk about wine?
2: Yes, yes. Well, you we'll, we can talk about wine all night with Frank, uh, and he's the only person that it's interesting to talk about wine with that I know on Mount Aetna, really. I don't want to be, um, would be uh, shitty towards. Other people working there, but I mean there are many kinds of entrepreneurs and and uh, producers and uh, from naive to very commercial to every possible they come from but every possible way of life but Frankie uh, he has um, he's asking himself uh, which is the best possible wine he can make and with, with which materials and which grapes. On Mount Etna, uh, and and uh, and he does Nerello with such passion and carefulness that it is you know it's with the culture done with his own hands that uh, he brings a Northern European. He's he's a Flemish person, you know, uh, and and he brings this this uh, this uh, almost fanatic um, single-mindedness and passion. What he does so, so so it's very different to what other people do. also he knows all about wines across Europe uh, and which is not common. and so he's always thinking which grape could fit here and is this similar to that? He has a lot of references in his mind, so there's a lot to talk about.
0: Speaking of grapes, I see that you mostly use Norello Mascalese in Sicily as opposed to uh, Norello Cappuccino. Why would that be? Well, You know, they're both native grapes of the region. Why? Mm.
2: They're cousins, first of all. They're not very different. Uh, Norello Cappuccio is just, is, a, is a soft um, wine, ripens a little earlier, it's slightly darker, but it's really very hard to distinguish though you get to learn how to, but uh, it's also almost irrelevant because it's like pepper on, on, on a huge salad. Uh, the, there isn't many plants of Nerello Macucci, uh, Capuccio, and they're just uh, mixed uh, in everywhere with the with the Nero Mascalese kind. So I, 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 most people don't really look at what they they don't see they don't care about the difference because they know that it's going to be a 1% ingredient the Nerello Cappuccio that's coming in so they're not even going to bother about it and, and uh, you will have make a better wine with Nerello Mascalese uh, than with Nerello Cappuccio so you might as well I mean it's not worth doing whole patches of straight Nerello Cappuccio
0: and you make a dessert wine on Sicily
2: well uh, with those white grapes I told you about at the end, we, we could put them aside, cases full of white grapes, and um, then we hung them on the ceiling for two or three months and um, and then uh, squeezed them when they were a little shriveled and, and uh, we got this very sweet juice, which then I would f- ferment and, uh, and uh, the effect of all this... Procedure and both the kind, the, the grape kinds, and the and the, um, the, the the bacteria they collected while hanging up there. It was a. It was because I'm not making that wine anymore, but it, it was about a thousand half bottles every year of of um, a sweet wine that smelled and taste and had a strong taste of saffron, which, which was probably its best. Side it was a uh, it was uh, something between peasant and and uh, and, and and higher up.
0: <laughs> Speaking of that, I mean, what's what's it like interacting on the island of of Sicily? I mean, I imagine you have shepherds in the area and people who have lived there for a very long time in the area, and yourself and
2: what's... yes. The, now um, there is um, not the population is very easy to get along with. They're just farmers and mountain, sort of mountain people who are very, you know, pristine people who are not. They're not, um, uh, no racketeering, uh, t- to mention of like like you could find in larger cities. Uh, so it's it, there's no, there's no. It's not that you have a problem with the mafia or anything like that. Uh, none of us have ever had any any anything like that, but. Uh, there are a large number of. I mean, the whole mountain is uh, rented out or claimed by shepherds, and the shepherds have. When I say claimed, uh, it's uh, they. It means that they have, that the, it doesn't belong to them, but they still use it as grazing ground, which is the case with shepherds anywhere in the world. But. So, when there was a crisis of wine and uh, vineyards receded down the slope, down Mount Edna, they, they 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 just came in, and now uh, they they need to be pushed back a little bit higher up the mountain or in other areas that, which are not just the northern side, uh, because there is a re- the reality of a new viticulture which is happening there, which is reclaiming where the old vines used to be. So there are some frictions which (laughs) just what happens is that you get a terrible fire when the winds are right which means that they're really howling in the direction of your own vineyard and they they light up the bush and and this terrible fires with 30 meter long 90 feet flames come rushing up and uh, and it's really dangerous and 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 you want to be lucky you know when that happens but uh, it doesn't damage the Matter of fact, that this last the last wine I made an old the old twelve bottle in a, my Franchetti wine is very fumé because of the smoke that came into the grapes. I, I don't mind it at all. It's it's an interesting feature, but it's through negotiations and and you know and the, and the inevitable dialogue that has that starts in a situation like this. You know, they, 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 these things like this will stop. You know, but this is awesome that goes on. You know. And so, this is the, this was the only disagreeable thing that happened for people, to people like me and others who have come to make wine, that, that, that to have trouble with shepherds.
0: You've had a, a history in terms of wine as being a little bit of an explorer, finding an area that hadn't quite reach the public consciousness and then working there to some success in both areas. What might be next for Andrea Franchetti?
2: I would like to make a Cabernet Sauvignon on sand because that's the best way to make Cabernet Sauvignon. And there are some sandy areas in Italy and central Italy that are fabulous uh, near the sea or also inland. Um, and that's the only thing that really I can think of as a, a very very nice wine one could make that would be I think successful and 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 very quickly could become a great wine. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon is, is slowly dropping off the uh, you know they're the planting more Cabernet Franc than Cabernet Sauvignon uh, in Tuscany, which is where they they plant most of it, and and uh, in Italy. And um, I think that to make, and the reason is that Cabernet Sauvignon needs to be in a not very heavy kind of uh, soil like you have in Tuscany with there's too much clay or rock. Uh, It needs to be in a gentle, sandy soil, and there you can make an extraordinary Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's that's something I'd like to do, but uh, it would be, I would like to do a small thing, you know, but I think it's uh, it's uh, you have I have enough to do and with with my place my places in Tuscany and in, in Mount Etna they do well fortunately but it took a long time to bring them to this and and if you start making wine make it in a small amount and don't expect results to be uh, I mean break even after ten years and if you can keep that going with a small profit. That's the, that's really the way it should be. And it means that you've done really well.
0: Andrea Francetti, He's done well in both Tuscany and Sicily. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Andrea Francetti. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose,